Hello, everybody. My name is Rita Brown, and I am an alcoholic. And in preparation to come to this meeting tonight, knowing that the air conditioning was on the blink, I went to spin class. So for you people over here, the makeup is not quite right because that was the tide that was facing the wall that didn't have the fan, and this side looks good, so I'll just turn and look at you a lot. I love this meeting. I love this meeting, and I love the energy that's here. I love all the people that's here. I love speaker meetings. I never, ever, ever get tired of hearing the stories about how people find the power in their lives that changes their lives. And I can hear it over and over and over again. And plus, I've rarely ever heard a bad ending to these things. I like that a lot, too. Um, my sobriety date is December 14th, 2000. Um, it goes without saying that I wasn't an instant success because the first time I went into treatment was in 1986. And you do the math. That did not spell good things there. Uh, I'm one that believes that it takes every single drink you drink to take the one drink for the last drunk that's the most important drunk of your life, and that is the one that kicks your ass, busts your butt so hard that you become willing to do anything that this program says to save your life. You know, when I hear these people talking about, oh, I just thought I'd do something about my drinking, I'm thinking, you're lying, your wife is going to leave you, or something was going to happen, because you're, we all got here. We didn't get here because we want, you know, we really just thought, oh, let me do something intelligent here. The fact of the matter is that we drank alcohol until intelligence was no longer an issue. I mean, that's just bottom line. Um, and, you know, I couldn't have done this program the way I do it now one day earlier and one day later. There was a man named Stick Wallace. He is in the big meeting in the sky. And he used to say there's no failures here. He used to say there's the only failures are the ones that don't come back. So if you're brand new, hang out. And if you're coming back again, you know, you can keep coming back as many times as you can live for, through, through it. I know I did. But uh, another, you know, and, and the greatest thing about it is that what seems to be the biggest tragedy in our lives it's about to unfold into the greatest, greatest life that you can ever imagine. You may have been raised in one of those normal families that I saw on TV. I was not in one of them, okay? I do not know what that means. I think, to me, normal is the cycle on a machine, a washing machine. That's it. That's as close as I can get to that. But I had no direction. I had no path. I had no way of learning how to... I had a lot of imagination and I had a lot of wants. I was always born, I think I was born wanting something. My first words were like, I can do it myself. And the second word was, I want fill in the blank. Because I really thought that the more stuff that I had, that the more that would feel that emptiness inside of me. I think I'm one of those people that I can honestly say that I was born feeling ashamed. And when I talk about shame here, I'm not talking about guilt. Guilt is what t separates us from psychopaths, okay? Guilt is good because if I screw somebody over, I lie, I cheat, I steal, I need to feel guilty. But the difference between me, for me, between guilt and shame is that shame, guilt is I did bad. Shame is I am bad. And I felt that way my entire life. I wasn't pretty enough. I was a fat little girl. I'm not kidding. My brothers used to call me pie face. Love that one. And I've forgiven him, you can tell. But um, 
Uh, and it was like, I, you know, uh, my family was extremely dysfunctional. My mother was bipolar and a prescription drug addict. My dad was just simply absent, and when he was there, it wasn't good. So preferred him to be absent. Um, and the messages I got all my life was if I was like somebody else. So what did I look at? I looked at somebody else. I wanted to be like you. I wanted to be like you, and I wanted to be anything but like me. And it was like, I, even from a little kid, I believed that everybody else had this map or this prescription or they had something that I did not. And if I watched you and I copied you, I could be like you and I would fit in and everything would be okay. And I'm, when I say this, I preface this, you know, I got confused about this program for many, many, many years because I used to hear the old timers talk about that alcohol is just a symptom of a bigger problem. Well, I did not get that. And what I mean by that is that I thought that if I put down the drink, everything was going to be fine. And it would for about six months. And somehow all that old stuff would kind of build up again. But when I came back in 2000, I really realized that every single defect of character that I march on now, I've had since I was a little girl. Nothing's really changed. I learned things. I learned, you know, if you're fat and you're chunky little girl, you're not going to be very popular. So you learned how to do things. You learned how to be smart. Okay. I learned how to back people down when I was a little girl. I was smarter than you. I was better than you. That meant I fit in. It didn't work, but I tried. Um, you know, I tried to be the good girl and that didn't, that kind of got me a lot of attention, but, and then I tried to be the bad girl and that did you know, neither one really worked. So, you know, I developed this this, this thing about, you know, I, I knew it was defective, I knew it didn't fit, so I started building these walls at the ripe old age of probably five, and they don't come down overnight. They don't come down overnight. And, you know, and I used to think that I had tons and tons and tons of character defects, but, you know, really, I have one, and it's called fear. And, you know, fear ran my entire life. Fear that I wasn't going to belong. Fear that you'd find out who I really was. Fear that I wasn't going to get whatever I was going to get. Fear that whatever. And so, you know, when I took, I took the first drink of alcohol, and the first drink of alcohol really wasn't on purpose because I really did set out to be a drug addict. I wanted to be a drug addict. And... Um, <laughs> Now, here's where I'm going to distinguish what my definition between a social drinker and an alcoholic is. And it goes something like this. But I'm going to use drugs to illustrate this. So for those people who are going to jump out the window, don't care because it's just going to happen once. Um, I remember I said I was a fat, chunky little kid. Well, when I was about 14, 15 actually, I was a freshman in high school, I found these little black capsules in my brother's medicine cabinet. And they were called, they called them California, uh, the black RJSs or California turnarounds, but basically they were 30 milligram biamphetamines because I'm a nurse now and I know that. But, um, and they were a prescription diet pill. And I thought that I had found my dream drug. And I took, you know, because I, I could take these things and I talked even faster than what I do now. And I didn't eat and I was very smart and I thought my dream had come true. And so I would binge on these things, and, you know, we had, like, I lived in a little, I lived in a dry town. Every drunk has to come from a dry town. I'm from Coleman, Alabama. And uh, now it's wet, and we have restaurants, and all. It's, it's very different, but back then we didn't. But 
the local drug dealer worked at the pharmacy. So, you know, how much safer could we get? You know, this thing about drying crap on the street, I don't know that about that because, you know, we just bought it from the back door of the pharmacy. But um, I did these pills until I got deathly, deathly, deathly sick on those things. And, I mean, it was horrible. And the only thing, I was staying with my brother because couldn't go home because you can't, you can't explain why you're puking. And um, it took days before I could eat again. And, you know, I never did that drug again. Now, I'm going to fast forward to alcohol. I can't tell you how many times, oh, it would be easier to name the times I didn't puke like none. And what I would try to do was decide how to drink, what to drink, and unfortunately, at the end of my drinking, I found, and I actually learned this in Alcoholics Anonymous, guys, I learned that even if you're puking and you could get a drink down, sooner or later, you're going to drink enough to make the puking stop. Now, you're going to be drunk again, but that's another problem, and that's down the road, but, so, but that actually will stop the nausea. That is that value of the morning drink. I didn't hear about that until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous only because I worked night shift, and so night was day and day was night, so it didn't matter. But, but you know, I stopped doing the drugs, and that's a normal reaction. That is what normal people do if you take a substance or ingest a substance that makes you sick, right? That, that makes sense. Uh, you know, Big Book talks about putting your hand on a hot stove. You'll jerk it away, right? How come that didn't work with me in alcohol? Never. Never. Because somehow or another, in spite of all my little drug experiments, when I, the first time I got drunk, it was the first and the only time I accidentally got drunk, I drank, was at my brother's house. By the way, I always partied with my two older brothers, 10, 12 years older than me, and I always partied with my brothers. And uh, good company. And um, that night I, wanted, I decided they would look like they were having fun while they were drinking, so I was going to try drinking. So they had a bottle, a fifth of Smirnoff, and I started drinking the Smirnoff, and I didn't feel anything. So I was drinking it with orange juice. Yeah, so after a while, I left out the orange juice. That would become a lifelong habit. Um, and still didn't feel anything, so I kept drinking and drinking and drinking, and by the time they realized what was happening, about that much was left in the vodka bottle. And I woke up the next day. Now, this is in the 70s. And I woke up the next morning. I had freaking Kentucky Fried Chicken in my hair. I mean, literally going like that. I got chunks of chicken coming up my hair. I have got shag carpet. They plastered in my face. And you know, I never ate Kentucky Fried Chicken again. Never. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And you know, I wonder about this. And I stand at the, you know, I listen to so many people talk. And they say they felt something. Something turned on when they took their first drink. I wasn't conscious that anything changed. I didn't feel like the warm glow, nothing. But I think that one thing did occur to me. I was a blackout drinker from the get-go. And from that, you know, and when you're blacked out, guess what? You don't feel. You don't hurt. You don't wonder. And for the most of my career, I mean, there's large, large chunks of my life, I was a blackout drinker. Um, I mentioned my mother. My mother was always entertaining, and I say that loosely. Um, but she was one of those people that was had these little triggers that she'd get crazy for a while, and she'd go somewhere, and she'd come back, and things would be wonderful. And I'd get my hopes up, and things would go to hell, and then she'd go off somewhere, and she'd come back, and things would get wonderful. And we did that over and over and over again. But this, um, this, the year um, right before I turned 16, 
Uh, Mom went off the deep end, and she literally chased me through the house with a butcher knife. And that was the year that Jackson Brown released the song, Here Comes Those Tears, Here Come Those Tears Again. And I'm 15 years old, and I'm not in a relationship, but this is a song about a guy that is singing about a very tumultuous relationship with his wife or girlfriend. And I didn't get it, but I could not get that song out of my mind. Here come those tears again just when I was getting over you. But what happened with me that day is that my mother, it was like there was an invisible wall, a very solid metal wall slid in place. I was tired of mother. I was tired of abuse. I was tired of everything. I didn't care if she ever came home. I didn't care if she'd get well. did not care anymore. I was over it and was done. But what did happen that, that struck me with peculiar with that is that for the first time I would stay with friends, I was staying with my best friend at the time, and that was the first weekend that I set out intentionally to go out with people to drink. And I was 15. Uh, from the time I, and I just barely, I had my learner's permit and I got my driver's license in October and from October until Jesus, January, I think I had three wrecks driving in a blackout, hit the same poor guy, Mr. McSwain's fence three times, different locations, three times. And nobody ever said anything to me. And interestingly enough, I didn't get into trouble. And, but the only thing that I ever heard was that I was bad. Nobody said, maybe you've got a problem driving drunk. Maybe you've got a problem with alcoholism. Maybe you shouldn't freaking be driving the damn car. Maybe somebody take the keys away, but that wasn't what happened. Instead, um, what I heard about was I was bad, and how could I do that to somebody, and why couldn't I be like, ever be like fill in the blank? And I know that script because I've heard that before. And the truth of the matter is I didn't know why I couldn't be like everybody else. You know, I would watch my, my kids in my high school, in spite of being at a dry county, there was tons. Uh, what was it? Uh, Strawberry Hill? Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill? Yeah, there you go. And we weren't fancy back then. It was Miller, Miller Ponies and Michelob Light, if you had money. And, you know, there was always, they drank, and they didn't do the crazy crap I did. And... And this is something we actually touched on in our home group not too long ago. My home group is the way out. But the big book talks about sex. You know, and when it's talking about a male's point of view, it's talking about performance. And when you get sober, you're going to perform again. No viral needed. Right. But what they don't mention is that a female alcoholic has a different interpretation of sex. It can be very, very shameful. Because in short order, I was the girl that you did not want your daughter to be with. I was a very popular girl with guys. I was, you know, my crowning accomplishments in high school was that I was key club sweetheart. There you go. That should be a clue. And I was Miss Southerner. But I didn't know why I was doing the things that I did. And I didn't know what made me that kind of person. So the shame that I already had was compounded by the shame that I incurred while I was drinking. And, you know, it was really bad going to school on Monday, finding out what you did on Friday night. That was, uh, it wasn't good. And you talk about learning to put on the mask, and you learn to smile, and you learn to act like everything's okay. But, dear God, it makes for more drinking. So probably by the time I was like 17, by 17 years old, I could have qualified for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous easily. Um, 
By 18 years old, I was actually down at the lake one day with a bunch of friends. And one of the coolest, best things about my childhood is that I'm from, I am from Coleman. And Coleman, Alabama has like one main feature. It is a big, huge lake. And it covers most of the county. It's a backwash from uh, the Tennessee Valley Authorities. It's very similar to Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia, if you've been there. And so all of my family, my brothers and my brother's wife, were in the boat business. So, you know, I learned to water ski by the time. I learned to water ski actually before I could ride a bike. I learned to water ski when I was like four. And uh, we would start skiing in March, and we would end in October. And it was, it was just always fun. But this particular night, I'd been to a party, and um, I had somehow miscommunicated with my elder brother. Yes, still with my brother. And um, he locked me out of the damn house. And I ended up sleeping in my car, which wouldn't probably have been so bad, except it was a Volkswagen Beetle. I've got to think about Volkswagen. I drive a Volkswagen today. But um, I ended up down at the lake with, us, with my friends and everything with my family and everything should have been good except that I am 18 and seven, going on 18 years old and I'm sitting there committing, thinking about committing suicide because life is just terrible and I do not know why. And I happened to meet a friend and he's still a friend to this day. We started talking and I learned how to slalom ski that day actually. I'll never forget that either. That was so awesome. But uh, Ralph was a good kid. Ralph came from a best Catholic family and he's like... You know, we started talking, and he's like, you know, you're one of the nicest people I know, and I've heard some pretty wild stories about you, but you can't, they can't be true because you're such a nice person. And somehow or another, something shifted in me that I wanted to be the good girl that people would like, and I wanted to change, but I didn't know how. So what I did is that I um, changed high schools. And if you change high schools between your junior and senior year, there is something wrong. There is a problem. But I changed high schools, and I stopped drinking. And back then, it was, in the, it was in the late 80s, and everybody wore khakis, and we didn't have polo yet. We have, uh, had uh, the Izod little alligator things and the Atabead necklaces and little shoes like I'm wearing now. And so I changed everything on the outside of me. And all of a sudden, I looked the part that everybody should look. And um, I managed to get into, when I started going to school, got accepted into nursing school, and on the outside, everything looked fine. And so I rocked that a little while, rocked that around for about six months or so, and I started drinking and ended up in this huge, god-awful temper tantrum, broke glass, and then it's like, holy God. So I picked up a period, actually, of binge drinking, you know, everybody says, oh, I can't be a drunk because I don't drink all the time. Wrong. You know, my drinking assumed various proportions during all this. And, um, and then I mentioned I started dating the uh, richest, fam richest kid from Coleman, Alabama, from a nice Catholic family, had all the stuff that was supposed to fix me and let me be okay. I loved his family. Jimmy and I have wonderful stories to share about that. I think our first marriages were about a light. We married to get out of the house, and we liked our in-laws just fine. It was just the person we were living with that was the problem. But anyway, yeah. But, um, and the problem is that if you're running, if you're running, and you've been in abusive relationships, you're not going to run to somebody that's going to treat you good. 
you're going to jump right out of that frying pan and into the fire because what I know is that I go to what I feel comfortable with. So I left my abusive mother and married an abusive husband. Uh, The thing is, though, I was raised with boys, you don't hit me. That's not wise. I wouldn't do that. But the other hand, you know, the relationship was verbally abusive. And so I sublimate that with I was in nursing school and I was working and I found out that work is a good work is another one of my favorite drugs. And so I started on this little track of uh, working to get away from problems. And then when I graduated from nursing school. I actually left Coleman and I went to work at the then called it was Caraway Methodist Medical Center. It was the Southeastern Trauma Center. And I'm still so proud of Caraway, even though it's standing empty in North Birmingham. Thank you, Obamacare. But um, at that time, we was the Southeastern Trauma Center. In other words, and if anybody of you laugh, I'm going to be not going to be happy here, but I don't care. If Ronald Reagan had been shot in the Southeast, he would have been flown to my hospital. Davy Allison actually was flown to my hospital when his helicopter crashed in um, Talladega. And so, you know, I left Coleman. I'd gone to Birmingham, and I became, started to work in coronary intensive care. And within six months, I was charged nurse, and all of a sudden, it was, as Bill says in his story, I had arrived. It was like I had found a spot in life that I fit. I was a good nurse right from the beginning, very intuitive. Very, you know, it was, it was just, it's just always been easy to me. That's the only thing I could say. That's God doing for me what I can't do for myself. It was exciting, and I was, it was just great. I was in Birmingham. And, you know... I did what I always did. I met, I started, I met a resident. I left my first husband. My mother told him where I was living. It got all crazy. I went back home to my first husband. There was more abuse. So I packed up everything I could get in my car at that time. And it was like I was driving a 1983 RX-7 because everybody graduates from nursing school and buys a new car and gets divorced. That's the order of things. So if you have a friend in nursing school, this is what we're all going to do. But... Um, I had a Mazda RX-7, and I literally went back to Coleman, and I packed up everything that I could get in the back of that RX-7, and I never told a person where I was going, never said goodbye to anyone. I just left, and I moved to Birmingham, and I've not been in Coleman County except to visit very shortly since. Um, And at the time, I stayed single. This is how relationships rocked with me. I'd left my first husband. I'd filed for divorce there. And I started dating my second husband like the next day. You know, I had this plan that I was going to go to Jazzercise and I was going to get in shape and I was going to live by myself and I had this great apartment and that lasted a whole day. And, uh, and now here's where life gets bad. My second husband was not abusive. My second husband actually adored the ground that I walked on. And worse... He did not try in any way to control my drinking. He thought I was old enough to make my own decisions. Can you name all the mistakes in that sentence? And so if there was a pilot light lit from the previous drinking, when Ed gave me the green flag to start drinking continuously and nonstop, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Within three years, I managed to do absolutely, absolutely destroy that relationship. We moved to North Carolina. Um, and I'm driving a Porsche and I'm married to a doctor and I've got the house and I've got the country club and I've got all the stuff and nothing, nothing has changed except the drinking is worse 
and I'm still crazy, and I'm still abusive, and I don't know what the hell I'm going to do because all my plans have worked, have not have failed. Um, in November of 1986, my ex-husband kind of helped me pack my Jeep and explained to me that, you know, I could have the house if I wanted to, which I really did not want to live in Reedsville, North Carolina. No offense, guys. Did not want to live in Reedsville, North Carolina <laughs> with my ex-husband down the street, which that's a very small town. But um, anyway, um, and you know, he said his parting words to me is, you're an alcoholic. And my, I'm a what? My brother was an alcoholic. My older brother is an alcoholic. He's been sober. I've been sober for thir- going on 13 and a half years. He's been sober 12 and a half years. He's 12 years older than me. But I didn't look the way he did. Damn, I drove a Porsche. I had all this stuff. I couldn't be an alcoholic. I had gone to college. Couldn't be an alcoholic. I didn't drink like he did. Well, that was early in the game. Later on, as Jimmy alluded to, I drank just like him. I just didn't do it in public. But, um, but I didn't know what an alcoholic was, but they, he said and suggested that maybe if I got help, and I thought, and what I heard was, if I went to treatment, we'll get back together. That wasn't what he said. But I went to treatment, and I actually left him and moved in with my mother-in-law in Huntsville, Alabama. And anybody, you have to be a drunk if you leave your husband and move in with your mother-in-law. But it worked good for me. But, uh, and then I learned about alcoholism, and I learned about it this way. For the first and only time in my life, through all the misery and all the crap that I'd been through, five months without alcohol, it resulted in my first and my only uh, suicide attempt. And what had happened was I had taken like a massive dose of 0.25 halcyon. And I think you know, I, I calculated this right because I'm a smart nurse and I was going to commit suicide. You're not going to catch me and do that kind of crap, so I'm going to die fat first. And uh, what happened instead was my son, who I'd figured out a way to get my mother-in-law to pick up my son, and she was going to pick him up, and I was just going to be sleeping, and everything was going to rock on, and I would just go out. Well, that didn't happen because my son woke up. He was a good kid, and he never slept. He never woke up in the middle of the night, but this night he woke up screaming and crying. And I remember, and I do believe that if you commit suicide, you go to hell, because I definitely had that feeling of going down a black tunnel, But I managed to crawl out of bed, and I crawled to the toilet, and I stuck my finger down my throat and gagged and puked. Managed to get enough pills out, and I crawled on my hands and knees. I still see this, and I still see this. Crawled on my hands and knees to my son's room and uh, crawled up on the um, side of the crib and looked at him, and he smiled, and he laid his head down and went back to sleep. I don't think it was my time to go. And I love my son. But... um, so that was the end of the five months of, of sobriety. And uh, so that took me to several changes. I'm not going to bore you, but I managed to get, came, I moved to Green, back to Greensboro in 1988. I figured Ed could have Reedsville. I'll take Greensboro. That was a good deal. So I moved to Greensboro. I knew two people at the time when I came here. I knew one of the cardiologists I worked with, and I knew my head nurse, and that was it. And so now when I walk down the street and I can't not see somebody I know, it just thrills me to death. But, um, you know, and so I came here and, you know, it's like they say about geographical changes, wherever I go, there I am. 
But I came into Alcoholics to the Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1990, and I remember my first meeting in Greensboro, North Carolina, was a 12 and 12 meeting at Westminster Presbyterian, and I remember it was Buck B, and so many wonderful, Ray A, and so many wonderful people, and they did not tell me to sit down, shut up, and put cotton in my mouth or any of that cute stuff. They said, we're glad you're here, and please come back. And I love them, love them with all my heart. I managed to get sober in 1990 through a series of events, uh, but and I stayed sober and I stayed dry. Let me preface that: stayed dry in Alcoholics Anonymous until September seventh of nineteen ninety-five. Now, if you're new and and very creative like I was, I'm mean, going to want you to please pay attention. If there's anything I've said, and listen to me now. All right, this is how not to do the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Please pay attention. Do not get a sponsor, or at least only get a sponsor in name. So if somebody asks you, you can say, I have a sponsor. And hope to hell they don't ask you, have you called them, okay? I figured that I was smarter than the rest. Jimmy alluded to this. I was going to go get a master's in Alcoholics Anonymous. I memorized the big book. I memorized the 12 and 12. I can still recite the how it works. Dennis Nansen, one of his greatest talks, it's, um, it's, in, it's at Fellowship Hall. It's in the the archive of tapes. One of my favorite all-time AA talks, he says, rarely we've seen a person stay sober who has thoroughly memorized the big book. <laughs> and I agree that because I, you know, and I really did think that because I knew these things, I would do these things. That was not the case. I could discuss them intellectually, but I did pieces and bits of what I thought was convenient. Now, I stayed sober five and a half years. And you say, well, how did you do that? Something must have worked. Well, something did work. I didn't drink, and I went to AA meetings 365 days a year. So if you want to be miserable, you cannot do any steps, not get a sponsor, go to AA 365 days a year. You will be dry. But I don't suggest that. I don't suggest that at all. Because what was happening was that I was working, I, worked, I was supposed to work three 12 hours a day. I was working three 16s in a row. I was uh, running eight miles a day. I was lifting weights a mile, weights an hour a day. And no, I know that has not changed that much. But I couldn't sit still and I was not comfortable in my own skin. And all those promises that I, we hear about the program that we come as a result of taking these steps and working them with a sponsor and practicing them in your life had not come true in mine because I hadn't done the work. Welcome, Einstein. In fact, it was so bad that when I relapsed, and the relapse was really interesting because I stopped going to meetings in January of 1995, but I didn't relapse until September of 1995 and what happened was that I walked into a friend's house and I walked over to a refrigerator and with no more thought than if I would to open a Diet Coke I opened the refrigerator and I pulled out a bottle of wine and I started drinking by the time the night was over I blacked out same old stuff and I was going to do it just this one time and I was going to get back to AA well, one time turned into a month, and somehow this month ended up really close to my birthday. And what had happened was I'd taken the month, the week off, because I was working as a model at High Point for a furniture company. And because uh, I thought it was cool, I'd been a nurse since I was six, work in a hospital since I was 17 years old. I didn't know how to do anything else, so I thought it was really cute to put on clothes and walk around and talk and get paid for it. I thought that was really different. And, um, so I was driving, I, was, I had decided I was going to drink one more time. I'm going to pick up a start over chip tomorrow. 
but tonight I'm going to party one more time. I came to in the middle of Lexington Avenue and High Point at the intersection of Maine and Lexington specifically. I had driven, I had a 1994 Acura Integra. I had ran under the back of the, you know, those big gigantic Broncos. Thank God it was big gigantic Bronco because that guy left the scene of the accident and never even left his name. My car was totaled. Um, I managed to, I'm not proud of this, I managed to get into a fight with, apparently I was blacked out because they were shaking me, shaking me, shaking me, and all of a sudden I came up and I punched this high point police officer who did not find that very entertaining in the face. So I came to, and you talk about the God of your understanding. You think you just find him when you get sober. Mm-mm, mm-mm. As it turned out, apparently I was a really jacked up mess because I was either cussing you out or praying. And I can, I can easily see that. But I must have said something because there was one of the police officers that I didn't hit, obviously, said I kept talking about the prayer. I kept saying the damn serenity prayer. And you're in jail and you're in cuffs and you're saying the serenity prayer. I guess that does get you cuffs. But he felt sorry for me. So he took the, they had those little god-awful bread ties on me. And uh, they took the bread ties off. And this officer would not let me be put in custody. And he walked me around until a friend of mine came and picked me up. And you would think, so I go to treatment, and that should fix it, right? Mm-mm, I got drunk going home from that treatment center. Um, so I get, you know, nothing changes, nothing changes. Nine months before, nine days, actually, before I'm supposed to get my driver's license back in February of 1997, I get my second DUI. And you can get one DUI, get a slap on the wrist, and you'll, it's real uncomfortable, and you pay a lot of money, but you get two life changes. Life changes. Uh, everything changed. Uh, first of all, there was no police officer to keep me out of jail. I got to go to jail on this one. And uh, the nursing board heard about this one. They have no sense of humor. They were, oh, God, they have no sense of humor. Uh, so all of a sudden, I found myself without any kind of license at all because actually what happened was I was supposed to enter an impaired drug program with the Board of Nursing, and I'm not a drug addict. And I would tell you I was not a drug addict, even though alcohol is the most widely abused substance of all. But alcohol, but you know, I thank God for that skewed decision because I couldn't have stayed sober if my life depended on it. And if I had tried to do their program, I would have screwed up and I'd never see my license again. So what happened was it began five years of the most pitiful and comprehensible demoralization that I have ever, could have ever imagined. Um, the only yet I have left is that I didn't die. That, that it was, I went to jail. I used to sit in meetings and talk about, I haven't been to jail. I haven't got DUI. La, 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 la. Oh, God, no. Just keep drinking. You'll get there. You can, come, you can rack up those accomplishments faster than you can re- even realize. When I relapsed in 95, I had all gold cards. I had a new car. I had every, new everything. And in six months, I was absolutely, totally broke. It goes that fast. It is like, brush, it is like kerosene on a brush fire. So, 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 so. And I started to come back. And what I also found out, this is a progressive disease. Remember hearing that part? Very much a progressive disease. And it gets worse as we get older. And what I found out that I'd always believed that I could just pop into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, pick up a start over chip anytime I wanted to, and everything would be fine. 
That was not the case. I started trying to sober up in 1999. Ran into Jimmy, I think, in February of 1999. And we started dating in March, March 3rd of 1999, again, working as a showroom model. But this time at his dealership. (laughs) And, uh, oh, that was fun. And on that day, on March 3rd of 1999, it rained, it snowed, and it sunshined. I should have known. But uh, Jimmy and I started talking, and we say we've not missed a day since, and it's been about 15, it's been over 15 years now. Now, here's the big problem, though. If you're going to hang out with somebody like Jimmy Brown, I strongly advise you to quit drinking because your best lies don't work. He can smell alcohol through the telephone. You can't lie to him because he's told every lie that I've told. But um, I was on a good run, though, and I got remember, I'll never forget this, because I picked up more six-month chips than anybody in the world could ever pick up, okay? The last time I came in in 2000, I didn't pick up a chip again until I picked up a nine-month chip because I just, just didn't trust that process anymore because every time I pick up a six-month chip, I got drunk. <laughs> But um, I managed to get six months, and Jimmy and I got, we went to the beach. And they say this disease is kind of baffling, powerful, and please bear with me, because it, it does get good. But I just want to throw this out the newcomers who are thinking that maybe I can just go hang around the bars, and it's 4th of July, la, la, la. Well, I'm out the beach with his family and his brother-in-law. Oh, God, his brother-in-law was drinking my favorite beer, and it just made me crazy because he didn't put a lime in it. He didn't do it right. And the only thing I could think of for the whole week was, he's so stupid he didn't even drink the Corona right. But by Friday, new plan. Jimmy goes out of town to see his family in Goldsboro, and I call him, and I throw a whale tail of a fit, and I throw plants, and I break things, and I raise all kinds of hell. And somehow, by the, like, 9 o'clock on Friday night, I'm drinking the Corona. Cunning, baffling, powerful. That little insidious thought that kind of swirled in my brain can lead me right out. Another, another one of my clever ways of doing it is that we talk about this in the big book, you know, fi- again, the family after. Can you tell my home group's been in the family after? He's talking about father wants to do good. He wants to build, you know, rebuild the economic status of the family. I was really, really, really good at working, 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 and I can work a lot of hours. I can rock on with that. And I would find myself too tired to go to meetings, too busy, too this, too that, too that. And let's just face it, if you forget who brought you to the dance, you could be walking home. Same thing with this program. So I used to have so many ways, but I did did not know how to stay sober. Finally, in March and July of 2000, I'd been on the best run I'd been on. I I had a sponsor, I had a counselor, and everything was going as wonderful as could possibly go. And instead, I'm sitting on my couch, and I have the most god-awful, I am sober. It is the 4th of July. It was around the 4th of July. Yeah, right. I'm sitting on the couch, and all of a sudden, my heart just starts to pound. And I can't breathe. And I'm like, holy God, I'm going to die. Well, you know, I'm an adrenaline junkie. And, you know, I've always worked ICU or worked out in the... And it never occurred to me about anxiety attacks because I lived in a constant state of anxiety. So how would I recognize I was having one, but which I didn't. And so 
Um, I remember going to the 7-Eleven and going and getting a huge Corona, and I drank the whole thing just really, really, really slow. But what I definitely remember is that I'm pouring down this drink. Everything in my world was pouring down with it. Because I knew this time I tried. I had made my best effort. I had done everything I could possibly do. And I knew I was going to die drunk. I was so sick of taking up the damn start over chips. You know, I was becoming one of those people that everybody, ha, 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 yeah, nods their head when they go pick up start over chips. And in fact, I was at one meeting and they ran out of aluminum tokens and I'm like fishing in my purse going, here, I got a few, you know, you can't make up stuff like that, people. That is true. And uh, I didn't want to do anymore. I didn't want to play. I wanted to die. You know, in Big Book, it talks about that we reach that jumping off point. We will meet, we will uh, find a loneliness that we cannot imagine. We will wish for the end. And I was tired. I was tired. I was tired of failing. I was tired of it all. And if I'd been nice, I would have told Jimmy and my son about it, but I didn't. And I just kind of like set out to kind of drink myself to death. And for the next six months, it would be a very, very rare occasion that uh, I would draw a sober breath. I was working as a programmer. And how I got that, I don't know, because when I came out of nursing and I surrendered my nursing license, I, my son, actually, this is how I got the job. My son was like nine years old. He showed me how to do windows, bada bee. And, and seriously, I was very blessed and very lucky. But, um, so, but being a programmer means you work at home and you can drink around the clock, as long as you can see the little thing. And I was doing, you know, it's pretty easy to get away with. But um, what actually happened was I got in a huge argument with my son. A huge argument with my son. And it was what we call, you know, you've heard old-timers refer to it as a brownout. Well, this was a brownout. And brownouts mean that you remember pieces, sort of, kind of, maybe. Well, I came out of brownout long enough to hear my son screaming at me, going, I hate you, I hate you, I can't stand this anymore. And... um, I woke up the next morning, and I was living in a townhouse that had these little sliding glass louver doors. And guys, bear with me, but you can't tell this story but the same way every single time. Um, They were off the runner, and for one minute, one minute, I could not remember, did I hit him? And I'd sworn I was never going to be like my mother. And that would probably been the only thing that I hadn't been like my mother about. I'd never hit my child. And I remember walking, we had these, slide, these sliding glass doors in the house, and I remember walking in and standing in this light, and I swear to you, it was the coldest light to this day. I have never felt another colder light coming through those windows. And I remember, I, I still feel that coldness. And I walked and looked in the mirror, and it's like a looking in the mirror. And the Kentucky Fried Chicken Days probably looked pretty good because I did not recognize my own face. Did not recognize my own face. I called Jimmy. I asked him to please come get me. He came and picked me up. I'm so sorry, Jimmy. And I still want to cry when I say this because he put up with so much crap off me. And he's a recovering person, right? And he's got everybody in Greensboro listening to him. And the person he loves the most won't give him the time of day. And when we say we get sober and we say we drank and we didn't hurt anybody... Think that one again, because I certainly did. But anyway, he came and picked me up, and he took me to High Point. Jimmy Brown is a good alcoholic because he brought me a 32-ounce ice house for the trip. 
And I remember driving over to and drinking that ice house and walking up to the treatment center at High Point and getting out of the car. And I remember taking that last sip as clearly as I do today. And I remember thinking, I don't know how to do this. I can't live sober and I can't live drunk and I don't know what I'm going to do. For all the years I thought I knew, for all the times that I thought I had the answers, little did I know that the one time I had no more answers I didn't have any more plans. I was beyond plan Z, D, we, whatever. I didn't have anything left. Was it going to be the greatest, greatest moment of my life? I remember walking into that treatment center. There was a nurse, so she was a psychiatric nurse that she had worked for me at Interim Healthcare. And I'd hired her. <laughs> and she's admitting me. She's, oh my God. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be here. And she goes, but you're right. I've got, I'm walking and talking to you with a blood alcohol level of 261. I need to be here. And, you know, it hit me that my dog could manage my life better than me. She'd certainly be nicer to me. She's 14, by the way. She's still got six months more sober than me. But, um, and, you know, in that, you know, I'd said I was an alcoholic. I'd said I had surrendered 2,062 times. But somewhere in that I don't know space, there came this opening. That's the only way I can describe it. I ca- or maybe you want to call it grace. I call it several things. But what I know is that I've never since that day wanted to take another drink of alcohol. What I also know is that I walk by the alcohol places or the billboards or the TVs. I still get bleh, nauseated as I could be. I always think that's a gift from God because the old timers used to say, if you can't remember what your last drunk was like, you got another one coming. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Life has changed. Life has changed. I don't have those three-year marriages. I don't have those three-year things. Jimmy and I have been together for over 15 years, and sometimes it's magic, sometimes it's tragic, but we have a good time. <laughs> we really love it. Well, the other day, he was getting up, and we was laughing about this. He got up to do something and almost fell. And we were playing Misty Blue, and all of a sudden, we started dancing, and it was so funny because it started out as a fall. <laughs> he fell for me. He did. But, uh, <laughs> no, okay, maybe you just had to be there, baby, but it was fun. But anyway, uh, the son that hated me is my most loyal, my most loyal, loyal, loyal child that I could ever imagine. He called me one night. He just moved, moved to Texas uh, several years ago. And he called me one night, and he's talking, 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 talking. It's 10 o'clock at night. Sean, what are you talking about? He goes, Mom, he said... You know, I remember when you used to work those steps, and and I used to think it was crazy, and you did a lot of work, and I didn't understand, but he said, I just wanted to thank you. I said, Sean, what happened? He goes, well, I just met my girlfriend's mother, and she's a drunk, drunk mom. He said, I'm so proud of you. You cannot replace those gifts. Uh, I thought it was smart. I got the opportunity to prove it. I went back to school. I got my bachelor's. And then Jimmy's, you know, one more time, you, you should go all the way. And so now I'm in graduate school. I've spent 31 years as an ICU nurse, and I have loved every minute of it, but also love that at age 52, I'll be 53 actually when I graduate, that I'll be changing careers and going on to another phase of my life, and it, it just excites me. But the greatest thing about recovery is that there is no end. There is the only limit is my imagination. If I stay sober, anything's possible. If I pick up that first drink, it's all over. We're done. We could sit down and go home. 
I cannot give, tell you, I cannot tell you the gifts that I've received from this program. It would take me so long. But what I learned, I started talking, started to talk about shame, and I'm going to wrap up about this. What I learned about self-esteem is the key word is self. Nobody is going to do it for me. By being able to be sober, by taking these steps and allowing them to work in my life, by having a sponsor, and I have the greatest sponsor in the world. She's here somewhere. I love her so much. Uh, by having a, you know, by doing these simple things, you can do esteemable things. You can do anything you please. You know, we, we were supposed to be sober to be a maximum service to God. There is no, no limit to how far that goes. Mike, Michael talked about doing the treatment centers. It's not just people in the treatment centers. It's anybody that we can be helpful to. Did it ever enter our minds that maybe that's why we didn't die drunk? It enters mine because I'm convinced that's the reason I didn't die drunk, that God has got something else for me to do. But by doing esteemable things, I can build self-esteem. By taking these steps and doing fourth and fifth steps, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, that shame has started to abate in my life. And you know what? What I've learned is that, you know, it's my perception. My perception is skewed. Life has been fine. Life is good. Life is awesome. But I need Alcoholics Anonymous to keep that perception clear and to keep that gratitude going in my heart. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.